And I'm so excited about so many things, the opportunity to meet all of you, the opportunity to do life together, the opportunity to unpack the richness and the sweetness of God's word. But I think more than anything else, I'm really excited to see what God is going to do in our midst. I'm not sure where I'm getting that one from. I'm so excited about what God's going to do here. My wife, Amanda, she wrote me a letter last week, and the first line of her letter, it said this. It said, God is going to do a great work at Gateway Church, and I firmly believe that. I can't wait to see how he's going to move in this body of believers, in this community, in this region, and in our world because of the work that he is doing here. And it is just such a pleasure to be with you. This week, we're kicking off a new series called Faith That Works. And in this series, we're going to traverse through the New Testament book of James. And James is a really great book. It's a really fantastic message about what it looks like to live out our faith, to be active in the world, to live as a community designed by God to live God's way. And for us, as we're sort of beginning this new chapter, as we're stepping into God's next for us, it's a really fantastic place to start because anytime you have a big transition, you have an opportunity to step back and say, God, what is it that you want from us? And James has got such a fantastic message. God is going to, I think, do tremendous things in our hearts and in our lives through this message. James is a very practical book. It's pretty straightforward. If you pick it up, you should be able to understand most of what you read. But don't be fooled. Just because it's easy to understand doesn't mean it's easy to apply. It's actually a particularly difficult book to apply. It's not something you're going to want to sit at home and read in your free time for joy, for pleasure. If you actually intend to do what it says, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be difficult. James was the younger brother of Jesus. And up until Jesus' death and resurrection, James was not a follower of Jesus. To be honest, I don't necessarily blame him. If your brother was traipsing around saying, I'm the savior of the world and the God of everything, I'm not sure I would believe him either, right? But then something crazy happened. Jesus was crucified and he was brought back from the dead. He was raised from the dead. And from that point forward, James was a changed man. He may have been a late bloomer, but he was a true hero of the faith. Just to kind of give you a sense of the kind of guy that James was, he would regularly go to the temple. This is post the resurrection of Jesus. And he would pray fervently for the Jewish people that God would change their hearts, that they would see Jesus for who he was, for the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And he prayed so frequently and with such passion that his knees became swollen and calloused. And it was said that he had knees like camel knees because of how passionately he prayed for the people. Even for you and I, for the majority of us that don't have a Jewish heritage or a Jewish background, we owe a lot of our journey to Jesus to James. You see, James, early in the New Testament, was a part of this very difficult struggle of trying to understand what's the place of Gentiles, of non-Jewish people, in the Christian faith. And there was a lot of heated discussion. Should Christians have to follow what was called the Mosaic Law? Should they have to keep up with every one of the dietary laws and be circumcised and have this entire lifestyle of Judaism in order to be a Christian? And James, in his leadership and his passion for God, 
stood up in the midst of a meeting called the Jerusalem Council and said, no, we should make it easy for the Gentiles to follow Christ. And so for us, it's an easier pathway now to knowing Jesus, in part because of James. James had such a passion for Jesus that even in the midst of his execution, as he was being killed for the message of Jesus, he was being stoned, and being stoned is a brutal way to go, man. Basically, a group of people get in a, get in a circle and they throw rocks at you. It's not the same kind of throwing rocks like I did with my little brother when I was young. We used to throw rocks at each other. Probably explains a few things. You'll get to know me a little bit. But they would hurl these stones at one another, excuse me, at the person that they were torturing. It was a brutal, bloody, bone-breaking type of exercise. Tremendous pain, tremendous torture. And yet, even in the midst of that, James said, very similar to his older brother Jesus, Lord, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. James was truly a hero of the faith, a man that we can look up to. And he was many things, but one thing that James was not is soft. James was not soft. He did not sugarcoat the message of Christ. He did not say it was going to be easy. In fact, from the very beginning, what we're going to look at next week in the book of James, he's talking about really tough stuff. He's talking about trials. How do we handle the hard stuff in life? How do we handle temptation? How do we handle the poor amongst us? How do we use our financial resources to better support those that are marginalized? And more than anything, overriding all of it, the book of James is about action. It's about doing something in the world. And for us, that message is so powerful and so pertinent because a lot of people that claim to love Christ only do so on Sunday mornings. They only do so with this, with their lip service, or with their mind, and not with their actions. And so I'm really excited to dive into this book. I'm really excited to see what God has for us here. But today, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at how we approach James. And there's a particular reason for it. James' message, God's message to us through James, is going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be hard. But there's a problem with that. Because I don't know about you, but I really like to be comfortable. Does anybody else? Right? I enjoy sitting in my recliner at home, sipping on my soda. And just as a side note, okay, it's not pop. There's no pop about it, okay? It's a soda. Come on, you live in Minnesota, right? I heard an amen. That's awesome. <laughs> I like to be comfortable. I like to sleep well. I like to have my mind clear of hard things. I like my way to be easy. Society tells us this. Our society worships comfort and ease and simplicity and making us feel good, doesn't it? You can't turn on the TV without seeing a commercial about this house and, and this pool or this hot tub or go on this vacation or be happy in this way. And it's not that those things are bad, but our society worships those things. And for us, if we're not careful, we might miss out on what God has for us, God's best, by choosing rather to go the comfortable route. And so the question for us today is why? Why in the world should I get outside of being comfortable, because I really like it, and I know you do too, 
for what God has for me in this uncomfortableness of studying James. Why should I do this? And so what we're going to do is dive in to this question. So if you have your Bibles, grab them. We're going to be in the book of Colossians in chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to take your cell phone out. You can download a Bible app on your phone. If you don't have a Bible, you can also check the screens behind me. Colossians 1, starting in verse 16, says this, For in him, this is God that we're talking about, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So as we approach this question, why should we look at James? Why should we sacrifice our comfort for something uncomfortable? We need to understand a little bit about what God is about. So we're going to have a little bit of a theology lesson today, a little bit of an understanding of how he functions, how he relates to us as human beings, so that we can really answer that question, why should we care? And the first thing that we have to know about God is that he is unbelievably powerful. God is unbelievably powerful, and perhaps nowhere else do we see this more fervently than in the creation account. So I want to I have a little experiment here, okay? I want you to imagine for a moment, we're going to go through this thought experiment to kind of try to grasp the magnitude of God's creative order, what he's actually done. So you, where you're sitting right now, with your height, with your background, where you're from, your family of origin, you were made by God. The person to your left and the person to your right was made by God. The person behind you and in front of you was also made by God. Every person in this room was made by God. You can look around if you want to. There's a lot of people in this room. God is a big God, isn't he? Everything in this room was also made by God. It may have been fashioned by human hands. The chair that you're sitting in certainly was created by gifted people who knew how to put things together to make a chair, but the material out of which that chair was made was fashioned by God, was created by him. The walls, the drywall, the paint, the carpet, everything in here was made by God. Isn't he powerful? But it doesn't just relate to this room. You see, everything outside of this room was made by God in the same way. Everything in this building, every building in Elk River, whether a residence, the home that you lay your head down in, to commercial places, to industrial parks, everything in Elk River was made by God. Isn't he big? But it doesn't stop there either, does it? Every blade of grass in Minnesota was made by God. Every tree in the Midwest was made by God. Every lake in the United States, every mountain and valley in North America, all of it was made by God. Every ocean, every people group, every single thing that you can imagine in your mind leads back to God. Isn't that amazing? If you lived to 100 years old, you would never be able to experience every element of what God has made on this planet. You could never explore every inch of it. 
It would be impossible to do so. And yet God made this entire world that we know. Isn't that amazing? But it doesn't stop there either. I'm going to put a number on the screen behind me. Does anybody know what this number is? Anybody want to take a guess? It's pretty close to a gazillion. This number is one sextillion, okay? All right, that's... It's one with 21 zeros. That's the estimated size, according to Cambridge University, the number of planets in the known universe. That's the number of worlds like this one, like the one that you're sitting in right now, with different mountains, with different valleys, with different volcanoes and oceans and different minerals and all kinds of unbelievable things that would blow your mind if you even began to go there. Just to give some context to this number, there's about 7 billion people on this planet, okay? Around 7 billion human beings that live today. If you divided this number by 7 billion, for every single one of us, for you and for you and for you, there would be 143 billion worlds that God made. God is enormously powerful. But not only is he powerful in the context of what he has made, we see this in verse 16 of Colossians 1, but he also governs everything. He continues to push everything forward. In verse 17 it says this, He is before all things, and in him, in God, all things hold together. That means that not only did he make you, but the fact that you're actually sitting down comfortably in a chair is because God governs this thing called gravity that allows you to sit comfortably, that allows things like your home to not float away or your car to go who knows where. Even in the very act of our breathing, God in his governance continues to lead us. You see, when you breathe, there's a muscle in your torso called the diaphragm. Your diaphragm, when you breathe, goes down, which opens your lungs and allows a vacuum to be created. And what happens when a vacuum is created is the natural order, the way in which God made things, is such that air goes in. You see, you don't even control the air that goes into your lungs. But God, because he governs every breath, allows your lungs to be filled with oxygen and keeps you living. We serve and know a powerful God. Now, because he's powerful, there are implications to this. It's not just that he's powerful, but because he is powerful, he understands the way that things function. God is powerful, therefore he knows the best way for things to operate. He's the creator of things, he's the governor of all things, and because of that he understands the best way for all of his creation to work. And that translates to your life and to mine. Did you know that you can never actually see your own face. You can only ever see a reflection of it. You can only ever see a picture. You can't control the number of hairs that are on your head, or how tall you are, or how thin you are. I wish I could control that a little better. 
But God, the author, the maker, the sustainer, the governor, he controls all things. And the implication is that he knows how life should function. He knows how your life should function, how my life should function, how all things should most effectively fit together. I have a friend. His name is Joe, and he lives in Kansas City. And Joe is what's called a process engineer. And what he does is he works for a manufacturing company, and his job is to design the best way to build whatever it is that he is building, that his company is trying to build. So for a number of years, Joe, he worked for Harley-Davidson, and he would get these bikes that were sent to him by the product engineers that were all put together, and his job was to say, okay, from square one, from the first tiny piece of material that goes into this bike all the way to its completion, how can it most effectively, most optimally be put together? So every single screw, every single stitch, every piece of metal, every piece of rubber, everything that goes into the making of a bike from soup to nuts, beginning to end, was his responsibility. And his job was to make sure that it most optimally functioned. In the same way, God does the same for our lives. He understands how all things should function together. He is kind of the greatest process engineer in that sense. Now, this is a good start. It's really good to know this about God. This helps to inform our discussion as to why should we care about listening to the message that might be uncomfortable in James. It's a good place to begin, but it's not enough. You see, just because God understands the way that things work doesn't mean that he actually cares. I mean, maybe God doesn't really care about you and me. Maybe he just sort of put it all together and then wound it all up like a clock and then stood back and said, okay, here we go. Back in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, their perception of gods were like that. Zeus and Apollo and Aphrodite, these were gods, false gods, of course, but gods that they thought only made everything and then completely stood back, were completely disinterested in humankind except how it would benefit them. Maybe God's that way. A lot of people in our society think that God functions that way, that he makes everything and kind of stands back. I mean, how could God actually live with all of the bad stuff that happens in life? How could he actually exist? How could he care for us? Maybe you're in that boat. Maybe you have a, a cynical mindset. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, I just don't know about God. I don't know about his connection. I mean, I've, I've had this happen. I've seen that happen, whatever it might be. There's no way that God cares. He doesn't love humankind. Maybe it's a bit more personal for you. Maybe you think, I'm unworthy of God's love. I've done so many things. I've been so far off base. I've struggled with that addiction for so long. You don't know what I've done. God can't love me. How could anyone love me? I don't love me. Maybe you think that. I want you to know something today, that God loves you. And it's not just the collective you, it's not only all of us, it's you, exactly where you sit. It's also not the theoretical, cleaned up, makeup on, dress ready to go you either. It's the you that's sitting right here that continues to struggle with that sin. 
that if you were found out, everybody around you would be ashamed. It's the you that's sitting here that isn't on speaking terms with your kids or with your parents. It's the you that's struggling with anxiety or depression. It's the you that's broken, which happens to be every single one of us in this room today. God loves you. And we see it everywhere in Scripture. I'm going to read several texts here. We're just going to go through these quickly. 1 John 4, 9 says this, We love because He first loved us. God is the initiator of love. Love only comes because He was the one that started it. Galatians 2.20 I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God's love isn't just an emotion, it's an action. It's an action of giving. A lot of people have this idea that the Old Testament God is the non-loving, law-oriented God, and then the New Testament God, the God more recently of the church, is the loving God. But that's not the case at all. You see, God is consistent all across both Testaments, both the ancient Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Jeremiah 31.3 from the Old Testament says this, The Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. You see, God's love is eternal. It has no beginning, and praise be to Him, it has no end. John 3.16, probably the most well-known passage of Scripture in all of the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I know we know this, many of us, maybe not all of us, but many of us know this passage of Scripture, and it's become sort of secondhand, but this is crazy when you think about it. That God gave up His own for you and me, as we were completely unworthy of it. We were completely disowning Him, completely shaming Him in the way that we lived our lives. And yet, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our shaming to Him, He loves us. And then we turn to the Psalms. I love the Psalms. We're going to spend a number of weeks this coming spring in the book of Psalms, and I'm so excited. If you want to know what God is like, spend a long season in the book of Psalms. You will see his character, his nature more beautifully than perhaps anywhere else in Scripture. Psalm 86:15 says this, But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And last, but certainly not least, Psalm 136, 26, Give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. God loves you. Now, you may not understand that. You may not know that God loves you. You may not know what we call the gospel. That's that God loves you in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of being unworthy of His love, that He reaches out and desires you to come and to know Him. If you do not know that, please come talk to me. Talk to another church leader. 
There is nothing more powerful than this gospel, this good news about Jesus Christ. And what it means for us that we can actually be what he made us to be. That we can glorify him and enjoy him forever. This beautiful phrase from an ancient piece of writing called the Heidelberg Confession. That we can glorify him and enjoy him forever. That's what humanity is about. That's what it means to be human. There are implications for us here, too. If God loves us, then he wants the best for us. And so God loves you, therefore he wants you to experience joy. And I mean deep joy. I'm not talking about fleeting happiness. I'm not talking about temporary euphoria. I mean long-term joy. I'm a parent of four kids. You're going to hear about my kids often. I love my children. Three of my four kids got back yesterday from spending 18 days down in Texas. And I am so deeply in love with my kids. It almost makes me choke up a little bit as I think about it. I want them more than anything to experience joy. I certainly want them to be happy, as often as can be done. But I want more than that. I want more than just their happiness. I want their joy, their eternal joy, the joy that comes from knowing God and enjoying Him forever. And what kind of parent would I be if I didn't want my kids to experience joy? In the same way for us, God desires for us to know Him, to experience joy. And so now we have these two things, right? We have the power of God, which means that God understands the best way for our lives to function. And then on the other side, we have the love of God, that God desires for us to experience and know joy. And as those two converge, it comes to the most important point for which we are talking today, which is this, that God wants you to have the best life possible. Now, this needs a little clarification. It doesn't mean he only ever wants you to be happy. Happiness is an emotion. Happiness is something that's fleeting. I get really happy when all I eat is candy, but it makes me sick. Right? God wants us to have the best life possible, which is a life filled with joy along the pathway that he has laid out because he's powerful enough to know it and he's loving enough to steer us that direction. And so as we consider the uncomfortable, the challenging, the difficult, the irritating, the convicting that we're going to experience in the book of James, we need to remember that God's purpose in it is not begrudging submission. It's not forcing you to do something you don't enjoy. It's not because He's guessing at the best way to live life. It's because it's the pathway to deep and abiding and everlasting fulfillment, the best possible life. And if we remember that, then it will influence the way that we see God, the way that we see His Word, and the way that our lives then are transformed by Him. And so the challenge for us today is to change the way we think about God. 
is to change how we perceive him, how we view him. If you still have your Bibles open, flip over to Psalm 16, verse 11. This is one of my favorite texts in all of the Bible. One of my most favorite. It says this, You make known to me, now this is David talking about God, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. I'm going to read that one more time. You make known to me the path of life. God tells us the right way in which we should go, the way that leads to life, to joy, to ultimate fulfillment. And then because of that, look at what happens next. Your lo- you will fill me with joy in your presence. We will have joy, unending joy, joy that only comes from God and eternal pleasures at his right hand. You know, pleasure gets such a bad rap. That word does. We associate pleasure with debauchery and sinful living. Do you like that word, debauchery? We associate pleasure with all these negative things, and yet God, that is such a beautiful word. His desire is to offer us eternal pleasure, holy pleasure, pleasure that you were designed to experience, but you'll only experience in God. I would encourage you to write this verse down, put it on your mirror, Think about it. Write it in your Bible as we traverse through James. And any time you're tempted to think, nope, I'm not doing this. This is too hard. I just want to give in to my temptation. I don't want to avoid it. You know, this this trial I'm going through, I, I just don't know. I think I want to avoid it instead of pressing in. Anytime you're tempted to do those kinds of things, remember that God leads us down the path of life. That he wants to give us joy and ultimate pleasure. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up, but before we end today, I want to tell you a quick story. There was a man, a young man, who had this tremendous gift. He was an unbelievable young attorney. He knew the law, the legal system, back and forth, inside and out. He had everything laid at his feet. He came from a very prominent family. He went to the best schooling, was taught by the best teachers. He had, in his future, wealth, fame, power, any and everything he wanted, anything to make his life comfortable. And then God did something crazy. Jesus completely took over his life. And from that point on, this individual, this attorney, he steered his life toward God. And he went through tremendous pain, tremendous difficulty, more so than you and I could ever imagine. And yet, he had some of the most amazing joy we can imagine. If you've been in church before, you probably are familiar with this particular man. He wrote much of the New Testament, and his name is Paul. And Paul, late in life, right before he was executed for believing in Jesus, wrote in Philippians chapter 3, what is more, this is Philippians 3, 8, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. 
I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. The good stuff is okay, it's good, but it's not better than what God has for us. And as we approach James, starting next week, I hope that we will change the way we view God, the change, the, change the way that we view difficult passages, because we're going to have some tough ones. But in doing so, I think that we will experience the best possible life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for being a God of such tremendous power. Power that our brains can't even begin to wrap around. Thank you, God, that you love us with such an unbelievable, unfathomable love. Lord, I pray that you would change us. That you would change the way that we view hard things, uncomfortable things, convicting things. That you would help us to see that you desire our joy and our pleasure, Lord, our ultimate pleasure. Help us, God, that we might remember this truth and that you might change us because of it. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.